Good morning. It's good to be with you here again. As some of you, or may probably many of you, recall, I had the privilege and blessing of spending uh, this time last January with you um, as we talked about and thought about the sanctity of human life and this decision, Roe versus Wade, that was enshrined in law 45 years ago tomorrow that granted a woman the legal right to end the life of her unborn child at any point during her pregnancy for any reason or no reason at all. Now, of course, there are some state restrictions, as you're probably aware of, um, that restrict abortions in certain trimesters as the baby gets older and larger and more developed, but the national case, Roe versus Wade, guarantees a woman that right, so you just have to cross state boundaries to obtain such a late-term abortion. In fact, we have one of those abortion facilities in Hollywood that will perform abortions in the third trimester. So, two days ago, hundreds of thousands of people marched on D.C., as they have been doing for over 40 years in what has become to be known as the March for Life. Hundreds of thousands of pro-lifers, pro-life advocates who are marching for the right to life of the unborn children in our midst. And yet, at the same time, there were other marches going on in our country. The uh, second annual women's marches in large cities in our country. Um, that though they walk for other things, the primary issue is reproductive rights. Many of the Women's March Facebook events that I viewed online, the description said things like, bring money to buy a Planned Parenthood t-shirt as we're raising funds for the local Planned Parenthood. So at the same time, we have men and women who are marching for the right of women to end the lives of many unborn women and little boys in the womb. If you're under the age of 45, you're a survivor of the abortion holocaust. And so I am here along with you as a survivor to walk alongside you as we talk about how we can be a voice for the unborn children in our midst. Bear with me if I drag my feet a little bit today. My wife and I are adjusting to a new sleep pattern, uh, though she would say I'm getting much more sleep than her, uh, which is true. Um, and uh, that's because we, had, uh, our, we met our newborn son on Christmas Day about a month ago. Uh, and here he is. It's, uh, Cedar Justice Gruber. Um, who's sitting right here with my wife. Uh, he has a much stronger name than me, and I would hate to compare baby photos uh, from when I was that age, so <laughs> not going to show you those. Um, I was talking with Rick before the first service, and he asked me, you know, how has that changed your perspective on this issue? How has that changed how you approach and think about this issue of abortion? And of course, I think all of us would say here, those of us who are parents, that having children made them significantly more pro-life and more passionately committed to the cause than maybe they would have been beforehand. And yet the horror, the horror is that the Guttmacher Institute, which is Planned Parenthood Statistical Research Branch, reports that 61% of the abortions that are performed annually in the United States are performed on women who are already parents, who already have one child or more. This last year, we had 
a record-breaking low number of abortions in the United States at just under 1 million. Highs have ranged up to 1.5 million a year in the United States since 1973. And it's easy for us to assume that, oh, if you're a parent, if you've had a child, surely you'd be pro-life. Or if you're a Christian, surely you'd be pro-life. And I'm sorry to say this morning that that's not true. And the confusion in our culture is so deep-seated. And that confusion has leaked into the church. And so that's why I'm here, to be a resource and a brother and a friend to you guys as we think about this together. Despite my age, I think I have some qualifications and experience to speak authoritatively on this issue. Uh, and I just want to share some of those with you so, I, so you know where I'm coming from. I was raised in a pro-life family. I grew up in Whittier, California. My mother was the director of a pregnancy care clinic, a pregnancy resource center in Southern California um, before I was born. And once uh, I was conceived, she stepped down from that position. But we regularly took part in the annual Walk for Life in Whittier. Many pregnancy care clinics do these annual Walk for Lives to raise funds. So I was a little five-year-old door knocker uh, trying to raise funds, more because I was incentivized to win the uh, highest fundraising prize, like a bike or something. But I understood from an early age that abortion was wrong. Now, I didn't know how bad. I don't think any five or six-year-old can really know how bad abortion is, but I understood that life was valuable, that babies were cute, and abortion was bad, because abortion ended that life. Once I was a senior in high school, I began to make the issue more of my own. I did my senior project on abortion. And Whittier High School told me, oh, you can't pick that topic. And I said, read the Constitution. So after I threatened a lawsuit, I was able to um, continue doing that um, paper on that, on that topic. Then I went off to Westmont College in Santa Barbara, a Christian liberal arts college, which some of you have attended here as well. And I was the founder and director um, of the Right to Life Club, the pro-life club on campus. Uh, and I led that for all four years. I hosted abortion debates on campuses, forums, trainings, and I conducted educational displays on campus. And I even went so far as to utilize graphic abortion imagery on campus. The reason being is that after three and a half years of trying to negotiate pro-life educational displays on campus, it became very clear to me that Westmont College was not going to address the issue in any meaningful way. In fact, they refused to take a stance on abortion. They refused to take any formal stance on abortion. And in an email chain with a few people, one of whom is still a communication studies professor at Westmont College, he shared his opinions on how we as a community at Westmont College should think about and deal with the issue of abortion. And this was after we had had a pro-life chapel speaker. And a lot of the faculty at Westmont are frankly quite liberal and pro-choice or personally pro-life, which is functionally the same thing. And this is what he shared about his opinion on abortion. The moral particularities of abortion are so fine-textured and open-textured that Manichaean distinctions about being pro or anti-abortion strike me as ethically obtuse. Our community and our students are best served when our chapel speakers invite us to tarry in the liminal spaces of complexity. Now, I don't know what that means, um, so I don't fault you for not knowing what that means. Um, and I wish I could tell you that that was a parody of professorial thinking, but I'm afraid it's much more a window into our culture and into our churches, the American church's deep-seated confusion on the issue of abortion. 
I just showed you a very cute and adorable photo of my son, and all of us have been around or had our own babies. This is what he's talking about. He's talking about murdering and tearing the limbs off of little babies in the womb. But let's not get ethically obtuse. Let's, let's linger in liminal spaces of complexity. While 1.2 million babies are being murdered in the U.S. every year, our church in America is deeply confused on the issue of abortion. In fact, the Pew Research Center conducted a study in 2016 on religious views on abortion in America. And they researched four different religious groups, all falling under evangelical Protestantism um, or Catholicism. They interviewed white evangelical Protestants, Catholics, black Protestants, and white mainline Protestants to determine their positions on abortion. Those positions were categorized as, and you will see on the screen, morally wrong, abortion being morally wrong, abortion being morally acceptable, and abortion not being a moral issue at all, which is just as bad as saying abortion is morally acceptable. White evangelical Protestants, 76% of them said abortion's morally wrong. 51% of Catholics said abortion is morally wrong. 46% of black Protestants said abortion is morally wrong. And 33% of white mainline Protestants said abortion is morally wrong. Well, it doesn't take a genius to account for the other percentages. The remaining percentages of those groups either said abortion is morally acceptable or not a moral issue at all. That's a huge number of people who were deeply confused on the issue of abortion. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 5 says, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. I want to ask you the question this morning, can you do this with the issue of abortion? Can you take captive these thoughts and these arguments in our abortion-driven culture that says a woman should have the right to end the life of her defenseless unborn human child at any point during her pregnancy for any reason or no reason at all? Can we take captive those thoughts and arguments to make them obedient to Christ? My experience has found that many of us in the American church today who love Jesus, who are committed to his gospel, don't know how to do that with the issue of abortion. And so that's why I'm here. And my goal is by the end of the morning for you to be able to say, yes, I can do that to some degree. Make no mistake, when we talk about the issue of abortion, the entire debate is split up between two different views of humanity. It's very easy for us to get caught up in the emotional rhetoric of the abortion issue, and we very quickly lose our way in discussions. So I want to draw a stark line down the middle of this debate and say that there are two radically different views of humanity. One is that, is that we can kill the unborn child because they are not one of us. Fundamentally, that is the pro-choice position. Call it a blob of tissue, call it whatever you want, use your euphemisms of reproductive freedom. The pro-choice position says we can kill the unborn child because they're not one of us. The pro-life position says we cannot kill the unborn child because they are one of us. They share our common human nature. Those are the two different views of humanity on this issue. And guess what? Someone's wrong. 
Call me intolerant, call me bigoted, someone's wrong. The law of non-contradiction says two opposing ideas cannot be true at the same time and in the same way. So either abortion is an indefensible act of violence or abortion is perfectly okay. Someone's wrong. And we're going to talk about this morning about why you're right. Why you are right. Why we are right when we say that abortion is wrong. That abortion indefensibly takes innocent human life without proper justification. And this is significant, guys, and this is important because Christians and non-Christians alike are deeply confused on the abortion issue. Now, Christ Community Church, unfortunately, is kind of a rarity. You guys actually give monthly to Obria Medical Clinics, to an organization that supports women in crisis pregnancies and provides all of their resources and services for free. They even support other pregnancy care clinics to help them be more effective in reaching more people. But you are a rarity. Most churches not only don't talk about this issue, but they don't participate in any type of giving to organizations that are on the front lines of this issue. So we need to talk about it because Christians and non-Christians alike are pretty confused on this issue. It's also significant because even those who feel passionate about the abortion issue, many of you feel very passionate about this issue. You're committed to life. Many of you give regularly to organizations that are a voice for the unborn. And yet how many of us can actually say, I can offer a persuasive and loving defense of the pro-life position and respond to objections to my position? I think a lot of us don't know how to do that very well. And that's okay. That's why I'm here. I want to be a resource to you guys so that you can leave here saying, I know how to take captive those thoughts and make them obedient to Christ. And lastly, this is significant, this is important, because babies are dying. Conservative estimates say that over 55 million, at least 55 million, how do you even wrap your head around that number? Unborn children have been slaughtered through legalized abortion in the U.S. alone since 1973. The Guttmacher Institute, again, Planned Parenthood's research branch, says that worldwide estimates are around 50 million a year. So we cannot avoid this issue. It has all affected us in some way, shape, or form. But I believe that Christians can help turn the tide on our abortion culture by doing three things. Three simple things that you can do, that this church can do, and that believers in the United States can do to incite meaningful change in our country on the issue of abortion so that, hopefully, God willing, we can say one day, I helped end abortion in my lifetime. And regardless of your thoughts on the current political climate, our president has done more for the pro-life movement in the last year than any president has done for all four years. Now again, I'm not here to promote any political candidate. I'm just telling you, he's done more for the pro-life movement in one year than any president has done in four years. So regardless of what we think about other parts of our current political climate, we can celebrate over that. And so I want us to be able to say together that we helped end abortion in our lifetime. And so, what can we do? Well, I believe we need to do at least three things. One, we have to engage. Two, we have to equip ourselves to engage. Pretty simple, right? Your willingness to engage in any issue doesn't mean a lot if you walk out not knowing what to do, not having tools to do that. And thirdly, we have to step up and make painful sacrifices on behalf of unborn children. So firstly, we have to engage. 
Surrender is not an option. Proverbs 31, 8 through 9 says to speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, ensure justice for those being crushed. Yes, speak up for the poor and helpless and see that they get justice. I'm sure you've heard this verse a lot, and the pro-life movement loves this verse because we rightly acknowledge that, oh, the unborn cannot speak up for themselves, and that's true. But I believe this verse is so much more than just a command. I believe it's so much more than just a rule that we should live by because we, in our sin, apart from Christ, apart from the gospel, apart from him predicting and pulling off his own resurrection to ensure our salvation, are also those who cannot speak up for themselves. We are Proverbs 31.8. And Christ spoke up for us. So when he tells us to speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, he already did that for us. 1 John 2.1 says, My dear children, I am writing this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, someone who spoke up for us, who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. So if Christ spoke up for us when we were utterly incapable of doing so, how can we not speak up for the unborn children in our midst who are equally unable to speak up for themselves? We have been vouched for. We have been bought. We have been spoken for. And we ought to show that grace to the unborn children in our midst. I mentioned to you the, uh, the quote from a professor at uh, Westmont College, and don't get me wrong, I loved my time at Westmont. I have some of the best friends in the world, and I was formed in ways that have significantly impacted the course of my life. And I have some friends in here who are Westmont alum, and we love our alma mater. But unfortunately, on issues like abortion, on other issues that are facing the church and the culture right now, some of the biggest issues that we need clarity on, Many schools like Westmont are completely silent. We hear little to nothing from the institutions that are forming and raising up future Christian leaders. And so after one of my demonstrations at Westmont College where I utilized graphic imagery to show people what Westmont wasn't showing them about the reality of abortion, I got an email from the current sitting president at Westmont College, Dr. Gail Beebe, who loves, absolutely loves Westmont College. And I happily obliged to meet with him. He asked to sit down with me, and I had really just one question that I wanted to ask him that I wanted clarity on. And be that to say, he wasn't very happy with what I had been doing on campus. And I asked him, Dr. Beebe, why doesn't Westmont College take a position on abortion? Why don't we take a pro-life position? We have a position on the sanctity of marriage, which we have derived from a biblical worldview. Why aren't we doing that with abortion? Meanwhile, places like Biola University and Gordon College and others were filing a lawsuit against our government for the HHS mandate from Obamacare that was going to require religious institutions to pay for and provide abortifacient contraceptives to their staff, regardless of their religious viewpoints. Westmont College's name was not on that list of colleges that was filing a lawsuit to protect their religious liberties. Silence. And he looked me in the face and said, Seth, there's a lot of issues. You can't expect us to take a stance on everything. You're right, there are a lot of issues. But which of those other issues is costing the lives of one million unborn human beings made in the image of God every year in the United States alone. 
We have to engage. We cannot afford to put ourselves in that type of position where we're silent. Many of you are familiar with the book by Eric Metaxas, um, wonderful Christian apologist, speaker, and author, and he wrote a biography on Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who I'm going to assume most of you know who he is. But to briefly recap, he was a theologian, spy, pastor, and social reformer in Germany during the Nazi regime. He was part of a conspiracy and an attempt on Hitler's life because he reasoned that he was going to save a lot more lives by ending the life of this man. He was caught, arrested, and assassinated for his involvement in attempting to assassinate Adolf Hitler. He was part of a group of Christians in Germany called the Confessing Church. One of the reasons they called themselves the Confessing Church was because so many German Christians were completely silent while their Jewish neighbors were being slaughtered and they resolved to be a voice. But even them, even they struggled to be a clear voice and to engage well. And so Eric Metaxas quotes Eberhard Bethke, who was one of Bonhoeffer's best friends. And Eberhard Bethke is discussing the situation the Confessing Church was in. And he says this, Bonhoeffer introduced us in 1935 to the problem of what we today call political resistance. The levels of confession and resistance, okay, remember those two, the levels of confession and resistance could no longer be kept neatly apart. The escalating persecution of the Jews generated an increasingly intolerable situation, especially for Bonhoeffer himself. We now realize that mere confession, no matter how courageous, inescapably meant complicity with the murderers. Even though there would always be new acts of refusing to be co-opted, and even though we would preach Christ alone Sunday after Sunday, during the whole time the Nazi state never considered it necessary to prohibit such preaching. Why should it? Thus, we were approaching the borderline between confession and resistance. And if we did not cross this border, our confession was going to be no better than cooperation with the criminals. And so it became clear where the problem lay for the confessing church. We were resisting by way of confession, but we were not confessing by way of resistance. And I think that, unfortunately, is a perfect indication of where the American church is today on the issue of abortion. How many churches, how many Christian leaders will proclaim, confess, we're pro-life, abortion is wrong, unborn children are made in the image of God, and what do they do about it? Silence. Our confession of being pro-life, of saying abortion is wrong, ought to and needs to manifest itself through way of resistance, through way of action-oriented resistance to the forces of evil. And that doesn't mean being a stereotypical conservative jerk. That means resolving to take action, to be a voice for the unborn, and to manifest our pro-life proclamation through steps and actions and behaviors that actually change minds, change hearts, and save lives. I don't want it to be said of this generation what was said of the German Christians during the Nazi regime. They are not remembered well because of their silence. Their silence to genocide, which is where we find ourselves today. So we have to engage. If the church and us as believers want to turn the tide on abortion in America today, we firstly have to engage. Surrender is not an option. We've been called higher. Secondly, we have to equip ourselves to engage. 
And our willingness to equip, to, to engage really means nothing, right? If we don't have the tools to do that. So we have to equip ourselves to engage. And I want to offer three steps, three things that you can begin doing now and on a regular basis to equip yourself to engage. Three things that will bring clarity and give you the tools you need to engage. First Peter 3.15 says, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. If we're called to have a reason and a rationale for our belief in Christ, for our belief in the gospel, then so too should we have underpinnings, reasons, rationale for why we believe abortion is an indefensible act of violence that takes the life of a defenseless, unborn human person. Can we get the slide, please? So these three things are, firstly, to we need to clarify the nature of moral reasoning. Secondly, we have to clarify the only question that matters. And thirdly, we have to clarify the case for life. These are the three things we need to do to equip ourselves to engage. Um, and if you, if you don't get those, I'm going to go through each one, of course. Firstly, we have to clarify the nature of moral reasoning. Listen, pro-life advocates are not claiming that abortion is wrong because we don't like abortion. It has nothing to do with our likes or dislikes. We're not claiming abortion is wrong because it gives us goosebumps and it makes us feel queasy. We're saying, we're claiming that abortion is wrong because it violates rational moral principles. In this case, that rational moral principle being, hey, it's always wrong to intentionally take innocent human life without proper justification. I'm going to make two different claims, and you are all going to recognize the difference between those two claims. Here's the first one. Vanilla ice cream is always better than chocolate ice cream. Now, for you uh, chocolate ice cream lovers, I hope we can still remain friends. The second claim is this. It's wrong to torture toddlers for fun. Now, what's the difference between those two claims? Go ahead. Exactly. One matters, one doesn't. One is a preference issue, right? If you like chocolate ice cream and I like vanilla ice cream, who's wrong? It's not a matter of right and wrong, it's just a preference. But when I say it's wrong to torture toddlers for fun, who of you would stand up and go, Seth, um, maybe it's wrong for you? but can you stop imposing your moral views on me? Because we recognize there's a difference between preference claims and moral claims. Here's why that's important, as simple as it sounds. When we say abortion is a moral wrong, the other side often hears, oh, they don't like abortion. Ever seen the bumper sticker? Don't like abortion, don't have one as if one's willingness or unwillingness to get an abortion has anything to do with whether it's right or wrong. So we need to be very clear what type of claims we're making. We're actually claiming that we're right. <laughs> we're saying that abortion is a moral wrong that takes innocent human life without proper justification. And either we're right or we're wrong about that. We're not making preference claims. Now one of the reasons that people continue to think about abortion as a preference issue is because Many of us have never seen what abortion is and does to the unborn child. And so we continue to think about abortion like an ice cream issue. And so we are going to show you a brief video clip of what abortion is and does to the unborn child. And I want to warn you beforehand that it is graphic and it is disturbing. 
And the reason it is that way is because abortion is graphic and disturbing. And isn't it interesting that when abortion imagery is shown, those who identify as pro-choice immediately get upset and angry? Isn't that ironic? If abortion is such a great idea, why does a simple picture of what you support make you so angry? Now, for your convenience, we have put instrumental music over this video so that if you choose to avert your gaze, you won't even hear anything that you don't want to hear. Uh, we're not pressuring anyone into watching this and we're not popping it on you. We want you to feel you have the freedom to avert your gaze or step out, or if you have children that you would like to opt out of this presentation, you can also step out with them. So without any further ado, we'll run this short video clip. That makes terms like reproductive freedom um, pretty disgusting, pretty obscure. This is what we're really talking about. And unfortunately, our country, seven men, 45 years ago, decided that this was going to be a practice and an option and a choice that was protected by law and guaranteed through all nine months of pregnancy and a practice for which hundreds of thousands of men and women across the country just marched to protect. Again, these women's marches were about other things as well, but the predominant message of these marches has been reproductive freedom. Now, I recognize when we show footage like that, the issue becomes much more personal and much more much more real in the minds of Americans. And so, because this issue is so predominant, it's very likely that some of you in this room have had some type of experience with abortion, whether that was personally or a family member or a friend. And so we don't show this footage to shame anyone. We don't show this footage to say, you know, you're a horrible person. We show this to put a face to it. Ephesians 5 says to have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. Very few things are as dark as the practice of abortion, and so that's why we show it. But if this has been an issue that's close to home for you, I, with the whole pastoral staff here, want to say that, that th this is a safe place, that there are people here who would love to walk with you through a journey of healing and reconciliation. And if, if you haven't come to terms with this decision, or those you know that may have had an abortion haven't come to terms with this decision, there are places like Christ Community Church, like Obria Medical Clinics, who you support, like people in this church who would love to walk alongside you in that journey of healing. Tim Keller put the gospel beautifully 
when he said, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. But at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. So the gospel says, yes, you are a sinner and you're more evil than you dare believe, but we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. And so you now have forgiveness and healing and reconciliation and new life offered to you. There is no sin that can forever separate you from the love of Christ if you've chosen his blood. Jesus is just as eager to forgive the sin of abortion as he is any other sin. So know that and hear that from me and from the pastoral staff here. So if we want to see meaningful change on the issue of abortion, and if we want to be part of turning the tide in our country on the issue of abortion, we have to engage. Surrender is not an option. Secondly, we have to equip ourselves to engage. And we firstly do that by clarifying the nature of moral reasoning. What type of claims are we making? Secondly, we have to clarify the only question that matters. The abortion debate gets so emotional and confused in so many of our minds, and so I want to provide you a question and tool in which you can literally simplify the whole issue with one question. And to illustrate what that one question is, I want to tell you the following anecdote. Greg Kokel, a Christian apologist and author, uses this when he speaks about the abortion issue. He says, I want you to imagine for a second that you're at your kitchen sink, because you don't have a dishwasher, and you're cleaning your dishes and your three-year-old toddler walks up behind you. Now your back is turned, and your three-year-old toddler asks you the following question. Mommy or daddy, can I kill this? Now, some of you parents have probably heard that question more than once. What's gonna be the first question out of your mouth in response to the question, can I kill this? What is it, exactly? Because if you turn around and your toddler's holding a cockroach, you might say, give me that hammer, you know, or here's a hammer, you go to town. But if he's holding the neighbor kitty, you might have a different response. And if he's holding his little brother by the throat, you need counseling. So you couldn't answer the question, can we kill this, until you answered the question, what is this? Very simple, obviously pretty straightforward, but it brings so much clarity to an issue that has been, being, become so convoluted. Greg Kokel goes on to say, if the unborn are not human, no justification for abortion is necessary. Have as many abortions as you'd like if the unborn are not one of us. However, if the unborn are human, then no justification for abortion is adequate. If the unborn is one of us and shares our common human nature, there's no justification you could offer in support of that practice that would suffice. So it all comes down to the question, well, what is the unborn? And we cannot answer the question, can we kill the unborn, until we answer the question, what is the unborn? So if we're going to equip ourselves to engage well, we firstly have to, answer, we firstly have to clarify the nature of moral reasoning. What type of claims are we making? We're making objective moral claims. Secondly, we have to clarify the only question that matters in discussions, and this is how you can learn to defend the unborn and be an ambassador for the unborn children in our midst by defending their humanity as a part of the human race. Thirdly, we have to clarify the case for life. Pro-life advocates make their case using science and philosophy, and our case is scientifically and philosophically sound. Now, we can also make a religious case, a Christian worldview case, for the inherent dignity and value of the unborn child, and there are plenty of beautiful verses about us being knit together in the womb, about John jumping in his mother's belly when he encountered Jesus and Mary, and Proverbs telling us to speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, but 
at the end of the day, many of the people that you will be discussing this issue with will not acknowledge Christ as sovereign. They won't acknowledge a Christian worldview. And so appealing to biblical arguments for the pro-life position will not really go anywhere with them if they're not acknowledging Scripture as authoritative. And if all truth is God's truth, then abortion is wrong regardless of whether Scripture says it's wrong or not. So this is how we defend our pro-life position. Scientifically, pro-life advocates appeal to the science of embryology. Scientifically, pro-life advocates argue that, there is, that from the earliest stages of development, meaning from the moment of conception, the unborn child is a distinct, living, and whole human being. That's what the science of embryology teaches us. The unborn child is distinct because it's a separate entity. It's not part of the mother's body. It has its own DNA code. It could have a different blood type from the mother and father. And get this, if the unborn child's a male and the unborn child's part of the mother's body, does the mother have a penis for nine months? Excuse the analogy, but honestly, if the unborn child is part of the mother's body, would that follow? No, it doesn't follow. Why? Because the unborn child is distinct. It's a separate entity. It's living because it's directing its own growth and dead things don't grow and it's whole. When we say the unborn child is whole, what we mean is that everything that's necessary for the unborn child to realize its full growth, its full potential as a participating member of the human species is already present at the moment of conception. That's what we mean when we say the unborn child is whole. To illustrate more what I mean by this, I'm going to tell you a brief anecdote again. I want you to imagine for a second that you've won tickets to a safari excursion and you get to take some of your family and friends out deep into the bush in Africa. And you all have your cameras, but one of you likes to kick it old school, and so you bring a Polaroid camera that spits the photo out right as you take it, right? And then you have to impatiently wait for the photo to appear. Good Lord. And as you're going out in this safari excursion, the uh, tour guide over the intercom tells you, uh, hey, we're entering an area where last week there was a black jaguar sighted. It's a pretty cool animal, right? They're not very, they're pretty rarely seen and even more rarely photographed, kind of like the double rainbow. And uh, as you're traveling along, the, uh, to your luck, this black jaguar sprints out from the bushes off to the right of your vehicle and leaps across the path in front of you. But because you're with all of your millennial friends, they're all Facebooking and Twittering. And so you're ready and available and you capture a photo of this Jaguar airborne. And then it sprints off and it's gone. The photo gets spit out. You start shaking it, waiting for this amazing photo to appear. And at that moment, I reach behind your shoulder. I tear the photo out of your hands. I rip it up into little pieces and I throw it to the side of the ground. Now, you're infuriated with me, but what if I just responded and said, you, you can't honestly be mad because that wasn't a picture of a black jaguar. That was just a black smudge on a white piece of paper, just a little smudge. You might respond by saying, Seth, what are you talking about? The jaguar was already there. Everything that was necessary for the photo to realize its full development was already there when the photo got spit out. We just couldn't see him yet. That's what I mean when I say that from the earliest stages of development, the unborn child is a distinct, living, and whole human being. And everything that's necessary for that unborn child to realize its growth and potential as a participating member of the human species is already present at the moment of conception, even if we can't see him or her yet. So you didn't come from an embryo. You once were an embryo. That is the scientific case for life, and the science of embryology confirms this. But science can't tell us why we should treat each other well, can it? 
Science just tells us facts about human beings, about who we are. But it can't tell us why we should treat each other well. So we turn to the philosophical case. We turn to the realm of philosophy to communicate value, to communicate that the unborn child has value like you and I. The philosophical case for life argues that there is no essential difference. There is no meaningful difference between the embryonic human being that you once were and the adults that you are today that would justify killing you at that earlier stage. There's no meaningful difference between who you were in the womb and who you are now outside the womb that would make it okay to kill you in the womb. Now clearly there's differences between the baby in the womb and you and I, but none of them communicate value. None of those differences are relevant in determining if you have value. But to think of what some of those differences are, I'm going to use the acronym SLED, S-L-E-D, which uh, as cold as it was last night in Orange County, I, I thought I could SLED, um, but first world problems, I guess. So S-L-E-D, S stands for size. Yes, it's true, the unborn child is smaller than the newborn child. Just like the newborn child is smaller than the toddler and the toddler is smaller than the teenager, just like because I'm six foot three, I'm taller than 95% of you in this room, but I don't have more value than you, do I? Shaquille O'Neal does not have more value than a midget because we all share a common human nature and a common human value. So size is not relevant in determining your value. L, level of development. Yes, it's true, the unborn child is less developed than the newborn child. Just like the newborn child is less developed than the toddler and the toddler is less developed than the teenager, just like we are less developed than our grandparents. So your level of development has nothing to do with your value as a human being and your right to not be killed. And yet, people appeal all the time to the smallness of the embryo and how minimally they're developed to justify killing them. E, environment, just where you're located, right? Yes, the unborn child is located in a very unique environment, his or her mother's womb. But when I move around on the stage or when you leave church to go get lunch or when you roll over in bed, you don't lose your value as a human being because you've changed locations. That's ludicrous. So why would a six-inch journey down the birth canal change the unborn child from something that we can kill legally to something that we're required to protect by law? Where one is has no bearing on who one is. Size, level of development, environment, and degree of dependency. That's just fancy words for meaning how dependent you are on someone or something else. Yes, the unborn child is very dependent on the mother for his or her life and sustenance and growth. But if your dependency on someone or something else is relevant to how valuable you are and how much of a right you have to not be killed, then it would follow that all of those who are dependent on insulin, heart pacemakers, kidney machines, and life support are all non-humans and don't have value as such because they're dependent on something they cannot live without. Size, level of development, environment, and your dependency are the four differences between the embryos you once were in your mother's wombs and the adults or young adults that you are today, and none of them are relevant to your value. And yet these are the biggest differences that pro-choice advocates appeal to to justify abortion but they don't accept those justifications for killing born people. So if we are going to be part of turning the tide on abortion in our country, if we're gonna be ambassadors for the unborn, a voice for the unborn, to change hearts, change minds, and save lives, and speak up for the voiceless, 
then we have to engage. Surrender is not an option. We have to equip ourselves to engage by clarifying the nature of moral reasoning, by clarifying the only question that really matters, and by clarifying the case for life by using science and philosophy. Once you understand the scientific and philosophical case for life, you can make it in two minutes or less. If you commit to learning this, you can then make this case. Scientifically, pro-life advocates argue that from the earliest stages of development, meaning conception, the unborn child is a distinct living and whole human being. That's what the science of embryology teaches. Philosophically, there is no essential or meaningful difference between who you were in the womb and who you are outside the womb that makes it okay to kill you in the womb. Differences in size, level of development, environment, and degree of dependency are not good reasons for saying, you had no right to life then, oh, but you do now that you're born. That's a scientific and philosophical case for life. And these are the ways that we can equip ourselves to engage. So if we want to be a part of inciting meaningful change in our country and turning the tide to protect a life so that we can say, I helped end abortion in my lifetime, we have to engage, we have to equip ourselves to engage, and we actually have to be willing to step up and begin making painful sacrifices. And sacrifices really should be painful, right? On behalf of the unborn children, and their mothers in our midst. Greg Cunningham, the director of the Center for Bioethical Reform, who is responsible for the imagery I showed you today, which has saved thousands of babies across different college campuses in our nation, says the following about the church in relation to this issue. There are more people working full-time to kill babies than there are working full-time to save them. That's because killing babies is very profitable while saving them is very costly. So costly that large numbers of people who say they oppose abortion are not lifting a finger to stop it. And those who do lift a finger do just enough to salve the conscience, but not enough to stop the killing. Those who are committed to keeping abortion legal, folks, I'm sorry to tell you, are larger in number and oftentimes more committed than the Church of Christ in America. Now, the pro-life movement is larger than it's ever been, I'm glad to report, but for the most part, the American church today is largely silent on the issue of abortion. So we need to begin stepping up and making painful sacrifices. Now, I'm, I'm encouraged by the fact that you are an anomaly, that you are unique. Pastor Rick told me uh, last year that um, after my talk, you guys began giving regularly on a monthly basis to Obria Medical Clinics. Thank Jesus. You're now contributing financially to those who are on the front lines of ministering to women who are facing crisis pregnancies. And they also support other pregnancy care clinics around the nation to help them be more effective with more resources to save more lives. So thank you for doing that. So this raises the question in terms of our duty on the issue of abortion, what is it? What is our duty? What is our calling? Well, if we think about the calling of the church generally, I think we can all agree that, well, the calling of the church is the Great Commission, right? That's what Christ left with his church before his ascension. Matthew 28, 19 spells it out. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So the Great Commission is twofold. We are to evangelize and baptize, and we are also to then teach those new disciples to obey everything Jesus has commanded. Okay, what is everything Jesus has commanded? Well, 
That's a bit overwhelming. It's all of Scripture. Jesus is God. He's part of the Trinity. And so all the commandments that flow from Scripture are from the mouth of God. And so we have to obey everything. But Jesus, in his brilliance, says and boils down the entire law and the prophets to hinge on two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, so our calling is the Great Commission. Part of the Great Commission is teaching disciples to obey everything Jesus has commanded. Everything Jesus has commanded can be boiled down to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Is the unborn child our neighbor? Should we think about the unborn child in the same light that Scripture puts the term neighbor? And of course, The science has shown that the unborn child is a human being like you and I. So yes, the unborn child is our neighbor. So how should we, how are we called to love our neighbors? Well, I think the parable of the Good Samaritan is one of the most powerful examples of how Christ calls us to love our neighbors. And so I want to read it aloud with you. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and, right, your neighbor is yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So in response to the question, who is my neighbor, Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was and when he saw him, he had compassion. He took compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. I think it's safe to say that the Levite and the priest as religious men had at least a semi-functioning moral conscience. I think as religious men who thought of themselves very highly, they probably would have saw the bleeding victim and said, I wish he hadn't gotten beat up. I wouldn't have beat him up. And yet they walked by on the other side. They may have felt compassion but they did not show compassion. They did not take compassion. That was what the Good Samaritan did. Proverbs 24, 11 through 12 says, rescue those being led away to death. Hold back those staggering towards slaughter. If you say, but we knew nothing about this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who guards your life know it? Will he not repay everyone? according to what they have done. So we have no excuse. We have to step up. 
we have to begin making sacrifices on behalf of the 3,500 unborn children who are murdered every day in the United States through legalized abortion because we can no longer say, we did not know. And we have seen the results of what abortion does to every innocent unborn human being. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that silence in the face of evil is itself evil. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. God will not hold us guiltless. So how will we be remembered? How will you be remembered? Except for the confessing church and Dietrich Bonhoeffer and a group of his believers and his community, the rest of the German Christians during the Holocaust in the Nazi regime are not remembered well. History does not recount their actions well because they were largely silent while their Jewish neighbors were being slaughtered. They were silent in the face of a Holocaust, which is where we find ourselves today. So are we going to be religious people who feel compassion about babies who are being killed and their mothers? Or are we going to take it a step further and be followers of Jesus who show compassion, who take compassion? I lost my mother to cancer after six years in 2015. And at her memorial service, which we had to build an overflow room for, a woman walked up to me in the foyer before the service and said, uh, you're Seth. Um, and I said, yes. And she said, you look exactly like your mother. And then she went on to tell me how she met my mother while she was directing this crisis pregnancy center, how they became friends. And as the service was about to begin, before she walked into the church, she told me, my daughter is alive because of your mother. And I think there's more than one woman who can say that about my mother. Don't you want to hear those words? I want you to hear those words. Whether in this life or the next, I want someone to say of you, to you, my son, my daughter, or I am alive because of your witness, because of your faithfulness, because of your voice, because of your sacrifices, because of you. So how are we going to be remembered? The last two verses of the parable of the Good Samaritan say, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy the one who took compassion. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. Pray with me. Father, thank you for not leaving us voiceless. Thank you for not leaving us to our own devices, but for coming, for fulfilling your promises and your prophecies and for predicting and pulling off your own resurrection. Thank you that you are the better good Samaritan that you showed compassion, you took compassion on your people, and you have promised to continue doing that. Give us the tools, the courage, the passion that we need 
to be a voice for the unborn in our culture and to radically and sacrificially love those unborn children and their mothers. Let it be said of us, to us, that because of you, my son, my daughter, I am alive. Second to hearing, well done, good and faithful servant, that is what we want to hear. Give us the courage and the passion to be a voice for your precious unborn human persons that you have purposed for yourself. Give us courage. Give us boldness. Thank you for this time. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.